0: Section 4 of The Descent of Man, Part 1 by Charles Darwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rory Lawton in July 2010. The Descent of Man, Part 1 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 2 On the Manner of Development of Man from Some Lower Form. Part 2 Arrests of Development There is a difference between arrested development and arrested growth, for parts in the former state continue to grow while still retaining their early condition. Various monstrosities come under this head, and some, as a cleft palate, are known to be occasionally inherited. It will suffice for our purpose to refer to the arrested brain development of microcephalous idiots as described in Foch's memoir. Their skulls are smaller and the convolutions of the brain are less complex than in normal men. The frontal sinus, or the projection over the eyebrows, is largely developed, and the jaws are prognathous to an effrayant degree, so that these idiots somewhat resemble the lower types of mankind. Their intelligence, and most of their mental faculties, are extremely feeble. They cannot acquire the power of speech, and are wholly incapable of prolonged attention, but are much given to imitation. They are strong and remarkably active, continually gambling and jumping about and making grimaces. They often ascend stairs on all fours, and are curiously fond of climbing up furniture or trees. We are thus reminded of the delight shown by almost all boys in climbing trees, and this again reminds us how lambs and kids, originally alpine animals, delight to frisk on any hillock, however small. Idiots also resemble the lower animals in some other respects. Thus several cases are recorded of their carefully smelling every mouthful of food before eating it. One idiot is described as often using his mouth in aid of his hands whilst hunting for lice. They are often filthy in their habits and have no sense of decency, and several cases have been published of their bodies being remarkably hairy. REVERSION Many of the cases to be here given might have been introduced under the last heading. When a structure is arrested in its development but still continues growing until it closely resembles a corresponding structure in some lower and adult member of the same group, it may in one sense be considered as a case of reversion. The lower members in a group give us some idea how the common progenitor was probably constructed, and it is hardly credible that a complex part, arrested at an early phase of embryonic development, should go on growing so as ultimately to perform its proper function, unless it had acquired such power during some earlier state of existence, when the present exceptional or arrested structure was normal. The simple brain of a microcephalous idiot, in as far as it resembles that of an ape, may in this sense be said to offer a case of reversion. Footnote. In my variation of Animals Under Domestication, Volume 2, page 57. I attributed the not very rare case of supernumerary mammae in women to reversion. I was led to this as a probable conclusion by the additional mammae being generally placed symmetrically on the breast, and more especially from one case in which a single efficient mamma occurred in the inguinal region of a woman, the daughter of another woman with supernumerary mammae. But I now find, see for instance Prof. Preyer de Kampf um das Dasein, that mammae eraticae occur in other situations, as on the back, in the armpit, and on the thigh, the mammae in this latter instance having given so much milk that the child was thus nourished. The probability that the additional mammae are due to reversion is thus much weakened. Nevertheless, it still seems to me probable, because two pairs are often found symmetrically on the breast, and of this I myself have received information in several cases. It is well known that some lemurs normally have two pairs of mammae on the breast, Five cases have been recorded of the presence of more than a pair of mammae, of course rudimentary, in the male sex of mankind. See Journal of Anatomy and Physiology, 1872, page 56, for a case given by Dr. Handyside, in which two brothers exhibited this peculiarity. See also a paper by Dr. Bartels, in Reichertz and Dubois Raymond's archive, 1872, page 304. In one of the cases alluded to by Dr. Bartels, a man bore five mammae, one being medial and placed above the navel. Michael von Hemsbach thinks that this latter case is illustrated by a medial mamma occurring in certain coptera. On the whole, we may well doubt if additional mammae would ever have been developed in both sexes of mankind had not his early progenitors been provided with more than a single pair. In the above work, volume 2, page 12, I also attributed, though with much hesitation, the frequent cases of polydactylism in men and various animals to reversion. I was partly led to this through Professor Owen's statement that some of the ichthyopterygia possess more than five digits, and therefore, as I supposed, had retained a primordial condition. But Professor Gegenbauer disputes Owen's conclusion. On the other hand, according to the opinion lately advanced by Dr. Gunther on the paddle of Ceratodus which is provided with articulated bony rays on both sides of a central chain of bones, there seems no great difficulty in admitting that six or more digits on one side, or on both sides, might reappear through aversion. I am informed by Dr. Zautofane that there is a case on record of a man having twenty-four fingers and twenty-four toes. I was chiefly led to the conclusion that the presence of supernumerary digits might be due to reversion from the fact that such digits, not only are strongly inherited, but, as I then believed, had the power of regrowth after amputation, like the normal digits of the lower vertebrata. But I have explained in the second edition of my variation under domestication why I now place little reliance on the recorded cases of such regrowth. Nevertheless, it deserves notice, inasmuch as arrested development and reversion are intimately related processes, that various structures in an embryonic or arrested condition, such as a cleft palate, bifid uterus, etc., are frequently accompanied by polydactylism. This has been strongly insisted on by Meckel and Isidore Geoffrey saint hilaire but at present it is the safest course to give up altogether the idea that there is any relation between the development of supernumerary digits and aversion to some lowly organized progenitor of man. End footnote. There are other cases which come more strictly under our present head of reversion. Certain structures, regularly occurring in the lower members of the group to which man belongs, occasionally make their appearance in him, though not found in the normal human embryo, or, if normally present in the human embryo, they become abnormally developed, although in a manner which is normal in the lower members of the group. These remarks will be rendered clearer by the following illustrations. In various mammals... The uterus graduates from a double organ with two distinct orifices and two passages, as in the marsupials, into a single organ, which is in no way double except from having a slight internal fold, as in the higher apes and man. The rodents exhibit a perfect series of gradations between these two extreme states. In all mammals the uterus is developed from two simple primitive tubes, the inferior portions of which form the cornua and it is in the words of Dr. Farr by the coalescence of the two cornua at their lower extremities that the body of the uterus is formed in man, while in those animals in which no middle portion or body exists the cornua remain ununited. As the development of the uterus proceeds, the two cornua become gradually shorter, until at length they are lost, or, as it were, absorbed into the body of the uterus. The angles of the uterus are still produced into cornea, even in animals as high up in the scale as the lower apes and lemurs. Now in women, anomalous cases are not very infrequent, in which the mature uterus is furnished with cornua, or is partially divided into two organs, and such cases, according to Owen, repeat the grade of concentrative development attained by certain rodents. Here, perhaps, we have an instance of a simple arrest of embryonic development, with subsequent growth and perfect functional development, for either side of the partially double uterus is capable of performing the proper office of gestation. In other and rarer cases, two distinct uterine cavities are formed, each having its proper orifice in passage. No such stage is passed through during the ordinary development of the embryo, and it is difficult to believe, though perhaps not impossible, that the two simple, minute, primitive tubes should know how, if such an expression may be used, to grow into two distinct uteri, each with a well-constructed orifice and passage, and each furnished with numerous muscles, nerves, glands, and vessels, if they had not formerly passed through a similar course of development as in the case of existing marsupials. No one will pretend that so perfect a structure as the abnormal double uterus in woman could be the result of mere chance. But the principle of reversion, by which a long-lost structure is called back into existence, might serve as the guide for its full development, even after the lapse of an enormous interval of time. Professor Canestrini, after discussing the foregoing in various analogous cases, arrives at the same conclusion as that just given. He adduces another instance in the case of the malar bone, which, in some of the quadrumana and other mammals, normally consists of two portions. This is its condition in the human fetus when two months old, and through arrested development it sometimes remains thus in man when adult, more especially in the lower prognathous races. Hence Canestrini concludes that some ancient progenitor of man must have had this bone normally divided into two portions, which afterwards became fused together. In man the frontal bone consists of a single piece, but in the embryo and in children, and in almost all the lower mammals, it consists of two pieces separated by a distinct suture. This suture occasionally persists more or less distinctly in man after maturity, and more frequently in ancient than in recent crania, especially, as Canastrini has observed, in those exhumed from the drift and belonging to the brachycephalic type. Here again he comes to the same conclusion as in the analogous case of the mallar bones. In this, and other instances presently to be given, the cause of ancient races approaching the lower animals in certain characters more frequently than do the modern races, appears to be that the latter stand at a somewhat greater distance in the long line of descent from their early semi-human progenitors. Various other anomalies in man, more or less analogous to the foregoing, have been advanced by different authors as cases of reversion. But these seem not a little doubtful, for we have to descend extremely low in the mammalian series before we find such structures normally present. Footnote. A whole series of cases is given by Isidore Geoffrey saint Histoire des anomalies. A reviewer blames me much for not having discussed the numerous cases, which have been recorded, of various parts arrested in their development. He says that, According to my theory, every transient condition of an organ, during its development, is not only a means to an end, but once was an end in itself. This does not seem to me necessarily to hold good. Why should not variations occur during an early period of development having no relation to reversion? Yet such variations might be preserved and accumulated, if in any way serviceable, for instance, in shortening and simplifying the course of development. And again, Why should not injurious abnormalities, such as atrophied or hypertrophied parts, which have no relation to a former state of existence, occur at an early period, as well as during maturity? End footnote. In man, the canine teeth are perfectly efficient instruments for mastication. But their true canine character, as Owen remarks, is indicated by the conical form of the crown, which terminates in an obtuse point, is convex outward, and flat or sub-concave within, at the base of which surface there is a feeble prominence. The conical form is best expressed in the Melanian races, especially the Australian. The canine is more deeply implanted, and by a stronger fang than the incisors. Nevertheless, this tooth no longer serves man as a special weapon for tearing his enemies or prey. It may therefore, as far as its proper function is concerned, be considered as rudimentary. In every large collection of human skulls some may be found, as Heckel observes, with the canine teeth projecting considerably beyond the others in the same manner as in the anthropomorphous apes, but in a less degree. In these cases, open spaces between the teeth in the one jaw are left for the reception of the canines of the opposite jaw. An interspace of this kind, in a kaffir skull, figured by Wagner, is surprisingly wide. Considering how few are the ancient skulls which have been examined, compared to recent skulls, it is an interesting fact that in at least three cases the canines project largely, and in an jaw they are spoken of as enormous. Of the anthropomorphous apes, the males alone have their canines fully developed, but in the female gorilla, and in a less degree in the female orang, these teeth project considerably beyond the others. Therefore the fact of which I have been assured that women sometimes have considerably projecting canines, is no serious objection to the belief that their occasional great development in man is a case of reversion to an ape-like progenitor. He who rejects with scorn the belief that the shape of his own canines, and their occasional great development in other men, are due to our early forefathers having been provided with these formidable weapons, will probably reveal, by sneering, the line of his descent." For though he no longer intends, nor has the power, to use these teeth as weapons, he will unconsciously retract his snarling muscles, thus named by Sir C. Bell, so as to expose them ready for action, like a dog prepared to fight. Many muscles are occasionally developed in man which are proper to the quadrumana or other mammals. Professor Vlakovich examined forty male subjects and found a muscle Called by him the ischiopubic, in 19 of them. In three others, there was a ligament which represented this muscle, and in the remaining 18, no trace of it. In only 2 out of 30 female subjects was this muscle developed on both sides, but in three others, the rudimentary ligament was present. This muscle, therefore, appears to me much more common in the male than in the female sex and on the belief in the descent of man from some lower form the fact is intelligible for it has been detected in several of the lower animals and in all of these it serves exclusively to aid the male in the act of reproduction mr j wood in his valuable series of papers has minutely described a vast number of muscular variations in man which resemble normal structures in the lower animals the muscles which closely resemble those regularly present in our nearest allies the quadrumana are too numerous to be here even specified. In a single male subject, having a strong bodily frame and well-formed skull, no less than seven muscular variations were observed, all of which plainly represented muscles proper to the various kinds of apes. This man, for instance, had on both sides of his neck a true and powerful levator claviculae, such as is found in all kinds of apes, and which is said to occur in about one out of sixty human subjects. Again, this man had a special abductor of the metatarsal bone of the fifth digit, such as Professor Huxley and Mr. Flower have shown to exist uniformly in the higher and lower apes. I will give only two additional cases. The chromio muscle is found in all mammals below man, and seems to be correlated with a quadrupedal gait, and it occurs in about one out of sixty human subjects. In the lower extremities, Mr. Bradley found an ossis metatarsi quinti in both feet of man. This muscle had not up to that time been recorded in mankind, but is always present in the anthropomorphous apes. The muscles of the hands and arms, parts which are so eminently characteristic of man, are extremely liable to vary, so as to resemble the corresponding muscles in the lower animals. Such resemblances are either perfect or imperfect, yet in the latter case they are manifestly of a transitional nature. Certain variations are more common in man, and others in woman, without our being able to assign any reason. Mr. Wood, after describing numerous variations, makes the following pregnant remark. Notable departures from the ordinary type of the muscular structures run in grooves or directions, which must be taken to indicate some unknown factor, of much importance to a comprehensive knowledge of general and scientific anatomy. Footnote. The Reverend Dr. Houghton, after giving a remarkable case of variation in the human flexor, pollicis longus adds, This remarkable example shows that man may sometimes possess the arrangement of tendons, of thumb and fingers, characteristic of the macaque. But whether such a case should be regarded as a macaque passing upwards into a man, or a man passing downwards into a macaque, or as a congenital freak of nature, I cannot undertake to say. It is satisfactory to hear so capable an anatomist, and so embittered an opponent of evolutionism, admitting even the possibility of either of his first propositions. Professor McAllister has also described variations in the flexor pollicis longus, remarkable from their relations to the same muscle in the quadrumana. End footnote. That this unknown factor is reversion to a former state of existence may be admitted as in the highest degree probable. Footnote. Since the first edition of this book appeared, Mr. Wood has published another memoir in the Philosophical Transactions, 1870, on the varieties of the muscles of the human neck, shoulder, and chest. He here shows how extremely variable these muscles are, and how often and how closely the variations resemble the normal muscles of the lower animals. He sums up by remarking, It will be enough for my purpose if I have succeeded in showing the more important forms which, when occurring as varieties in the human subject, tend to exhibit in a sufficiently marked manner what may be considered as proofs and examples of the Darwinian principle of reversion, or law of inheritance, in this department of anatomical science. End footnote. It is quite incredible that a man should through mere accident abnormally resemble certain apes in no less than seven of his muscles, if there had been no genetic connection between them. On the other hand, if man is descended from some ape-like creature, no valid reason can be assigned why certain muscles should not suddenly reappear after an interval of many thousand generations in the same manner as with horses asses and mules dark-coloured stripes suddenly reappear on the legs and shoulders after an interval of hundreds or more probably of thousands of generations these various cases of reversion are so closely related to those of rudimentary organs given in the first chapter that many of them might have been indifferently introduced either there or here thus a human uterus furnished with cornua may be said to represent in a rudimentary condition the same organ in its normal state in certain mammals some parts which are rudimentary in man as the os coccyx in both sexes and the mammae in the male sex are always present whilst others such as the supracondyloid foramen, only occasionally appear, and therefore might have been introduced under the head of reversion. These several reversionary structures, as well as the strictly rudimentary ones, reveal the descent of man from some lower form in an unmistakable manner. Correlated Variation In man, as in the lower animals, many structures are so intimately related that when one part varies so does another without our being able, in most cases, to assign any reason. We cannot say whether the one part governs the other, or whether both are governed by some earlier developed part. Various monstrosities, as I, Geoffrey, repeatedly insists, are thus intimately connected. Homologous structures are particularly liable to change together, as we see on the opposite sides of the body and in the upper and lower extremities. Meckel long ago remarked, that when the muscles of the arm depart from their proper type, they almost always imitate those of the leg, and so, conversely, with the muscles of the legs. The organs of sight and hearing, the teeth and hair, the colour of the skin and of the hair, colour and constitution, are more or less correlated. Footnote. The authorities for these several statements are given in my Variation of Animals Under Domestication, Volume 2. End footnote. Professor Schaffhausen first drew attention to the relation apparently existing between a muscular frame and the strongly pronounced supra-orbital ridges, which are so characteristic of the lower races of man. Besides the variations which can be grouped with more or less probability under the foregoing heads, there is a large class of variations which may be provisionally called spontaneous, for to our ignorance they appear to arise without any exciting cause. It can, however, be shown that such variations, whether consisting of slight individual differences, or of strongly marked and abrupt deviations of structure, depend much more on the constitution of the organism than on the nature of the conditions to which it has been subjected. Footnote. This whole subject has been discussed in Chapter 23, Volume 2 of my Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. End of Section 4 Recording by Rory Lawton.